Amanda Lewis is as funny as she is talented. As a child, she dreamed of being a dancer. From jazz to ballet, she studied different styles of the art form, move by move. She dreamed of attending one of Baltimore's best institutions to study dance. However, her world was overturned when she was not placed into the dance program. That disappointment resulted in what perhaps was the biggest victory of her life. Amanda grew up in a musical family, a grandmother who was the director of a church choir, a father who played several instruments, and a supportive mother who exposed her during childhood to performances at the highest levels. This resulted in Amanda not only having a love for dance, but also for singing. Her disappointment in dance led her to audition for a slot in the school's singing arena. It is there that she truly found her voice. Amanda embraced what she now discovered was her gift and ran with it. She studied music at university and impressed audiences every time she performed. After university, she studied in Italy with some of the most renowned voice coaches in the world. Upon returning to the US, Amanda continued to perform in both classical and contemporary spaces. Being one of the few African-American women in the opera space, Amanda discusses with us her journey and swings open the door to reveal much more about the world of sopranos, arias, descants, and all things opera. Did I mention that she's now writing and producing her own opera? This is the story, thus far, of Amanda Lewis. I am Crispin Brooks, and this is Planet 30. I am Crispin Brooks, and this is Planet 30. Today with us is Amanda Lewis. Welcome to the planet, Amanda. Oh, hello. Thank you for the welcome. <laughs> <laughs> you are a musician yes. and opera singer. Yes. Can you please tell us your journey uh, with music? When did it start? How did it start? <laughs> How much time do you have? <laughs> As much as you need. <laughs> uh, so my journey started very early. Um, I would say as young as three, actually. Um, in my third year, my parents introduced me to the violin. Um, it was this little teeny tiny thing. And um, I mean, I wish I still had it. It was so small. Like, you, you don't even think they make violins that little. But um, I studied the Chiquetti method, I think that's right, for a couple of years. Um, you know, you, you learn basics like the Mississippi, uh, I think it's uh, cross buns. I get the... And I think I performed my first quote-unquote concert at Wolf Trap outside of D.C. before I was six. Really? With my little my little ensemble of all of us little tiny kids got on stage and played our little songs in unison, our pieces in unison, you know, super simple things. Um, but that was probably, I mean, that was honestly the start of it. Um, as far as me being introduced to formal 
training um, and I guess the skills or whatever that you learn from learning to play an instrument, reading music, etc. Um, as far as formal training goes, uh, I had the great privilege of attending a really good private school in Baltimore, Maryland called Friends. And so we had really good music classes with really great music teachers and access to instruments. So, um, you know, I went to music every week. I was in the special choirs. Um, the music teachers con consistently made comments on my report cards about my singing and my voice. Um, I learned, I remember, uh, there was a recorder club in elementary school. I was in the recorder club, <laughs> which, <laughs> and this basically means that during special times during the day or, or after school, I got to meet with other kids and um, beyond, I think it was third or fourth grade, I can't remember which grade, but beyond the regular recorder lessons we had in music class, we would actually get to learn additional music play the recorder and, you know, in parts and harmony and, um, fourth and fifth grade, I joined choir, which I want to say was an after school, you know, an extension for children who wanted to do more singing outside of regular elementary school choir and music classes. Um, you know, and I get picked to sing the desk pants, AKA the, special parts the high parts <laughs> yeah exactly um for people who had nicer voices and interesting the range um and uh yeah I, I just i love music i always have um i guess i say i guess i would say less formally um my parents, my father especially, um, well, pa my parents love music. My grandparents love music. Um, we're very musical people, and I don't even mean that in, like, you know, the black stereotypical, we, we love music people, but, like, <laughs> we just are really um, very musical people. My mother loves music. She loves listening to it, loves trying to sing her favorite songs. <laughs> um, oh, you She so loves trying. dancing. My father um, actually played instruments when he was um, in school as well, trumpet, saxophone, and um, because he's from Lancaster, Pennsylvania, he also played the banjo. Okay. <laughs> um, and uh, he actually was first chair saxophone in his high school uh, band. Um, and... Um, yeah, and my father have always had a very eclectic taste in music. Um, I mean, he loves jazz, but um, I just remember growing up, we always had, there's always, always music playing. Uh, and my father really, really loves music. Um, he would talk about the music and the musicians in such a way where we might be listening to like a cassette tape. Yeah. A cassette tape and <laughs> he would he would point out a specific section in a song either it was a theme or a specific instrument or a specific sound that he thought was just really great and he was like listen 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 to this listen to this and he'd play it and he'd go yeah listen to that <laughs> <laughs> and it would be like a bass section 
or a solo of some sort or a special beat or um, perhaps a solo rift in, in a jazz song. Um, and they had really good, they have really good taste in music. So we only had like good music playing in our house. Um, like Tina Marie, Prince, Luther Vandross. Um, my father listened to bands in the eighties. Like I remember like um, Ivory Coast. I don't know if you're familiar with them. Um, or the um, Asian jazz band Hiroshima. Mm-hmm. Hiroshima. I'm not sure how you pronounce it, but um, you know, so stuff like that was always in the background. Um, but my father also loved Jimi Hendrix, and you know, um, and, and my my grandmother, my so my my father's parents both sang in their church choirs um, in their little tiny church um, in Oxford, Pennsylvania. Um, you know, so the men's choir, women's choir, respectively, the, the mass choir, respectively, uh, the mass choir of like eight people. Oh. Um, I love that church. Oh, and uh, they had an upright piano in their home. And my grandmother always played that piano. Um, and we would stand around and we'd visit with them at their farmhouse. And she would play hymns from the, the Christian um, hymnal. Um and we would sing songs with her. Um, one of her favorites to play for us was Tell Me the Story of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Tell me the story of Jesus. Something like that. Um, that one and um, uh, Walk in the Light. Uh, but she, she would play and would sing with her. And, um you know, you don't think about things like that for what they are at the time, but it, you know, it's, yeah, I just love, always love music. Um, and, uh, I, I did, uh, I did dance for a long, 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 long time. Um, and what, 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 t- know, what kind of dance, what type of dance? Oh, so I actually ended up abandoning the violin for a little bit because, um, this is a great story. So my, and this is actually kind of sort of in a really roundabout way how I got into the theater arts. But um, when I was about, again, three, everything happened when I was like three, between three and five years old. It's really strange. But um, <laughs> I was fairly young when Cats, you know, I think when Cats came out in 1984, right? Uh, um, so I was about three years old and Cats came to Lincoln Center in D.C., and my parents bought tickets for myself, my sister, and I. Uh, my sister and I to attend with them. And uh, what my mom did was she bought the book, Old Possum's Book of Cats, that the musical is based off of, and made us little individual books. You know, back before they had the copying that they had, and she, like the plastic sleeves and the notebooks, and <laughs> copied the book and put them in the sleeves and. So anyway, she would read the stories to us. So when they paid all that money to take these like tiny children and three at six, three and six to the musical, they wouldn't waste their money. Um, and I was just mesmerized by what I saw and was like, I want to take dance lessons. And so my parents were like, well, you know, choose one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, I chose dance. Um, cause they were like, yeah, this is good. This is like too expensive. We can't do, do this. Um, so I did classical ballet for many years. Um, many years from about four until, um, 
Well, I would say, so I, I danced and took formal lessons probably from four until 18. Um, but then I picked up the violin again briefly around nine through 12, again, going back to really middle, middle school. Um, because again, because of the private school I attended, I was able to participate and picked it up again and played a little bit um, with like the little orchestra and we would travel around different places and perform or whatever. Um, so anyway, um, but yeah, so it's it just, I would say that it was probably just a really big, music was just always around. Um, you know, my father's father was always humming, typically hymns, but always humming and um, my mother's mother, who I love her because, um, she's like, I have come to understand that she was like the activist in our family, um, the pro-black activist in our family, but she was always singing Nina Simone, mm-hmm. Young, Gifted, and Black to us, um, and always exposing us to great black artists, some of whom were alive back then, some of whom were no longer with us. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it just, looking back on it now, it seems so obvious, but you know, it's, yeah. Everything (laughs) just worked, uh, into your subconscious without you even knowing. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I'm, I'm an artist. I've always been an artist. You know, the thing about being an artist, as you know, Crispin is, um, you don't choose to be an artist. Either you are or you're not. Um, Indeed. And, um, you know, it's it's part of your fabric. It's part of your soul. It's um, And most people who are artists um, are involved in different types of art. It's, it's you know, it's, it's all-encompassing. Um, but um, as far as focusing on music, um, through dance, I actually... Um, had an opportunity to attend Alvin Ailey Dance Camp in Baltimore City. Uh, the company and some of its dancers were hosted a free summer camp for kids in Baltimore. And um, I got in and I got to spend the summer studying and performing with them. But there was a theater professor I studied with from Baltimore School for the Arts. And he actually um, told me to audition for theater. Um, I told my mom about it and told some other people about it. And many people emphatically insisted that I audition for music. So I ended up auditioning for music and dance, but I didn't tell anybody until it was late. So I actually had missed the original audition deadline. So by the time I auditioned, they only had like a handful of spots left in the music program and one spot left in the dance program. So my journey actually could have been very different had I made the regular audition. Um, I did have it on good authority that I had a good shot at getting into the dance program. But um, the young woman who got in did, was better. She, um, they had a guest artist because it was a um, special audition and they did an improv uh, section. And let me tell you something. Um, one thing that classical ballet does not do for you is teach you improv. (laughs) (laughs) And 
Yeah, it was like me and like another white girl and I don't know, but she was just, she was more confident than I was. I mean, you got to give it to her. Anyway, I, I didn't get in, but I was encouraged to re-audition the following year when they had more spots available. Because um, School for the Arts is tiny. They only typically take about 300 students total in the whole school or, or, per, or per year, I think. I think it's per year. I don't know. They don't take a lot of people. It's a very small school. Wow. Um, yeah, I think my graduating class was like 54 people. Anyway, I digress. Um, so I got in immediately for music, for singing. And everyone was like, you know, my mother was like, look, people have been telling you your whole life that you need to seriously pursue this. You know, give it a year because, you know, I had been at friends' school since I was in preschool. And I was like, what do we um, but I got in for voice immediately and, um, that changed everything. Um, you know, I continued to take dance lessons outside of school. I ended up moving from the Ballet Academy of Baltimore to Morton Street Dance Academy, which was owned and run by black women. Um, continued taking dance, ended up adding jazz, West African dance and modern to my repertoire, which, uh, gave me you know, some more help with my improv and rhythm. Um, again, you should have seen me in my first few African dance classes. It was tragic. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it was, again, but, you know, by the end, I was doing barrel rolls. So, you know. Um, but, yeah, that I would say Baltimore School for the Arts really is what solidified my trajectory into pursuing opera um, and classical music as a medium. Yeah, um, not to cut yeah. you off, but I was going to ask, yeah. you know, in in, yeah. in in an age where, you know, you were coming up in the 1980s and 1990s, and mm-hmm. this is the age of the emerging hip-hop R&B scene, as well as, yeah. of course, pop music. You know, with all that going on, what really inspired you to to fall in love with classical music? Because there's so much more temptation on the other side in pop and R&B, and you have the voice. What made you go in that direction? (laughs) (laughs) You know, um, a lot of different things. So, so one of the things about, okay. So again, I told you about the school that I went to friend school and, um, really, 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 really great music class. And I remember one class in particular, my teacher played for us Mozart's Requiem Mass. Um, I don't know if, you have ever listened to it all the way through it's played in a lot of movies not all obviously. the way through <laughs> okay well obviously Amadeus the movie Amadeus you know that really strange version of Mozart's life um, yes you know um, I don't know how true it is that he laughed like a bumbling idiot all the time but anyway um, you know um it's 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 used a lot in movies and in different film and uh i just remember i think i was in seventh grade and i thought it was one of the most beautiful things i'd ever heard in my entire life Hmm. i just it um it just it just it just hit me it just tore through me i just i really connected with it um i just i loved it um, you know, and 
You know, and I do think that part of it is the fact that I did go to a school with majority white teachers, and a lot of the music they exposed us to came from the Western tradition. But, um, but to your point, 90s, I, I did listen to the radio. I did love listening to the 90s girl groups. Um, you know, I'd be singing along to SWV just like the rest of them, but um, and in vogue. Um, but um, I think for me, Classical music has always spoken to the intellectual in me. Um, now, don't get me wrong, because I'm not, I have friends who are black musicians and black ethnomusicologists, and they will fight me um, for denying the intellectualism and musicianship and artistry involved in what you consider more quote unquote traditional black musical art forms. Um, so I'm going to be very clear about that. Right. Uh, but um, I think part of it, honestly, is this, the symphony. So, okay, I love the symphony. Like, I love the symphony. Do you remember um, your first experience? Jeez, uh... my first experience with the symphony. I mean, I mean, again, you know, my parents took us to musicals and things. And so there's something wonderful about the way that in opera and musicals about the, the, the way that the whole machine works and in opera you know it's like you're up there singing over this entire orchestra like there's something really amazing about that but being accompanied by like dozens of instruments that is like the coolest thing ever they're as all there to the support first... your voice yeah exactly i mean come on that's just cool uh, <laughs> but um as far as my first symphony experience, I mean, again, the school that I went to, but also because my parents were mindful people, I mean, I, I've i been, again, a lucky, privileged kid who got to attend symphonies growing up, um, you know. So, I mean, my first symphony experience was probably in elementary school. And the truth is, I always loved it. Um, you know, even when you were young and you get bored halfway through because no child under the age of a certain age had to sit that long, but... Um, I still, I still loved it. It's there's something just really incredible about that many people coming together and being guided to create this beautiful music. Um, so the symphony, large ensembles like that. Um, I love listening, by the way, kind of random to traditional South African music with like large instrumentation and like really big choirs. Ugh, mm. I mean, just ugh. Just it 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 just stirs your soul. Anyway, so I love the symphony, love the symphony, and at school for the arts, um, music theory was one of my favorite classes. Um, really? Oh gosh! Like, not just learning how to read music, but understanding the mechanics of it. Um, so basically. What they do when you study classical music is you're essentially learning um, everything that the musicians and monks and the Catholic Church, all the rules that they created for how to write music. So anyone who's who listens to Catholic masses or the music even of the Anglican Church, because of course that's rooted in the Catholic, you know, canon. Um, when you take music theory, you're learning these uh, theories around, um, they call it counterpoint. And essentially, you're learning the rules 
in chronological historic order of how music moved from Gregorian chant writing all, all the way up through, you know, the masses of, of the Renaissance era and, and beyond. Um, and there's all kinds of rules around, you learn the history of, of what they deemed celestial music versus the quote-unquote devil's music and the devil's chord or consonant harmonies versus dissonant harmonies and then of course after doing that for three years you get to spend half a semester um or or a year learning about jazz theory and how it takes all the rules that you learned and in some cases it seems like it throws them out the window but actually it demands that you have this great command of music to be able to then create art where you're manipulating the rules. Understood. Um, you know, and you understand as a person who studied film, you know, you you can't break the rules until you know what the rules are. So, yeah. um, and the thing is, unfortunately, and here I think it was where the shame is, um, classical music and the classical tradition um, is the only from what I've seen is the only arena besides jazz where there's a demand that people learn to read music and to become musicians. Um, you know, R and B singers, they should also be musicians. They should also learn music and they should also learn the rules. But, you know, pop music is more about the commercial machine of taking a product who happens to be a person and giving them a hit single and literally painting them up and then throwing them on stage and then they're hot for like five minutes, but that's it. And many of them end up being very limited. Mm. Um, and then you get into all the whole conversation around the difference between artists versus entertainers. Um, I had a very casual relationship with a guy who worked in the music industry for number of years and um yeah i just said that i can't believe i said that but anyway <laughs> i just said that um and he and i once got into i asked him a very honest question i said you know why do you call them artists i said why Ooh. do you say that you sign artists i know i'm about to get Ooh. About to get in trouble I'm about to get in trouble <laughs> and he said what do you mean i said they're not artists they're a product i said how many of them actually get to take the time to be able to sit and work on their craft. Mm. <laughs> very deep, very deep statement. Very I deep mean, statement. Now, some 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 may argue that um, if you're learning uh, what 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 hundreds of years, what what what's been put down for hundreds of years, that you may not be an artist. Maybe they're creating something original. I don't know. That may be an argument. Well, but how do you create if you don't know how to use your instrument to create? Very good point. <laughs> <laughs> and again, see, here's the thing. I've been asked to work with, quote unquote, up and coming singers with independent labels. I've been asked to give voice lessons to people. People are literally hiring individuals with quote, what they call, quote unquote, raw talent. Mm-hmm. And then they bring in vocal coaches to work with them to basically pretty up their voice. Yes. To make it sound good enough to record. Well, you know, we have Melodyne nowadays, so. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, again, my question is, why do you call them artists? <laughs> I mean, Aretha Franklin was clearly an artist. 
So, you know, draw but for me the there diff- are others who I, I won't say who, but are not. They're, 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 they're entertainers, they're product, you know. Well, sketch for me the difference between Aretha Franklin as an R&B singer and blank. Oh, see, no. What you wait, see, what you now going to do? No, no, no. When I, when I say blank, okay. I don't want okay. you to name another R and B singer. Perfect. Just, just you know, someone else who is not considered. Like, what, what, right. is, what is Aretha? What did Aretha Franklin do uh, to separate herself? So Aretha Franklin, um, first of all, is also a writer. I mean, so so the thing about her as an artist is that she's an artist beyond an artist where singing was her medium. She she played piano. Um, Aretha Franklin, you know, she had other musicians that she studied and listened to. And, you know, her training came through the church, as it did for many black people, including some black classical musicians. Um, you know, she worked to hone her instrument and that's the difference she worked to hone it to really work on it to make it better outside of just trying to um sell something mm. you thus, understand? thus your, your thus your criticism that uh most are just products exactly exactly and they are i mean and, and i mean i mean come on like how many and people talk about this? People reference this all the time with rap, all the time with rap, but they don't talk about it with singers. And I find that so interesting. It's like, and it's and it's no different. The, the recording industry is turning out products, they're turning out entertainers with very little substance behind their instrument. But it's no different. It's no different. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, you know, it just happens that. Uh, for me, what I was exposed to, um, classical music, the classical arena, opera, it, it's, a, it's an arena where, you know, I, I looked around me and again, there were tons of young black girls who, um, or young black people, period, who, you know, it's almost, it almost seemed to me like because it was a product and obviously I didn't have the language to articulate this feeling back then. But it seemed to me that if you were cute enough and your voice was good enough, I didn't say great. I didn't even say good. I said good enough. <laughs> if you just happen to be picked, if you just happen to catch the attention of the right person, then you could be a star. Mm. And that was it. Um, versus with opera, and obviously I would learn more about how racist it is as I got older. But with opera, there's no hiding behind reverb. There is no high. I mean, you. There is no hiding. Period. Um, it's very clear and obvious the second you open your mouth, whether or not you understand what you're doing. Mm. The sheer intelligence training practice that it takes to amplify your voice, to sing over a giant Wagnerian orchestra or Mahler's symphony orchestra without a microphone. Without a microphone. Without a microphone. Indeed. 
you can't, it's like, even if you, even if you choose not to go into opera per se, to, 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 to be able to do that, the physical ability, the athleticism that it takes to do that, um, it was like, wow, this is why this is something that everyone doesn't do. Mm. And honestly, at the end of the day, that's what appealed to me, that you can't, anybody can be picked out of the, I mean, we've seen it, come on, we've seen it, where, I mean, you pick somebody out the audience, and you go, okay, go up here and sing the song, well, they happen to have a, they happen to, a really good, talented songwriter happens to make something really beautiful, and somebody with a half-decent voice sings it, and, and everyone just falls in love. Um, with opera, you can't do that. And so I was like, okay, this is what I want to do. <laughs> you you wanted the challenge, but have you have you ever considered uh, doing something more quote unquote contemporary, like oh, absolutely the Amanda Lewis R and B album? Given the you fact given the fact that I you would, do have the training, I, you know, and I would I, again. See, I'm a musician. I I love all music. Um, I love music. I. And, you know, and I have performed, in fact, in Pittsburgh, when I moved here for two years, I had a steady live gig um, every Thursday in this in and around the city. I had a partner, um, this white guy, Jeff. Um, we literally called ourselves the Jeff and Amanda show. I don't know how his name ended up being first, but whatever, it doesn't matter. <laughs> um, <laughs> but he played the guitar. We had a little acoustic act. Um, you know, and we played at places around town and we actually had a steady following of people that showed up every week to hear us perform. Um, I got paid, not a ton, but I got paid cause I don't work for free. <laughs> and, um, yeah. And we did covers of R and B folk nineties, alternative music, um, even some original music that he had written. Um, you know, we did some Corinne Bailey Ray, um, okay. some Tracy Chapman, some, Fast um, car. Melissa Etheridge and Shell Crow and I mean, you know, um, had your own little I mean, Lilith Fair going on there, huh? Yeah. You know, it's, um, we even did, um, there's a cover. We did a cover of a cover. <laughs> So the the, uh, the Stones, uh, Wild Horses. Yes. There's a group. I can't remember. I want to say they're a '90s or 2000s alternative rock band, but they did a cover of that, and we did their version of it. And we always closed our show with that song because people people would be crying. Um, I think I have a recording of it somewhere. I'll have to send it to you, but. Um, yeah, I mean, listen, I love performing with rock bands. Um, Interesting. Total, total, totally random um, fact here about me. One of my favorite things to do that I discovered in New York many, many, many years ago in Brooklyn is live karaoke. Do you know what that is? Uh, I mean, karaoke. with Oh, with, you mean with a band? Yes. Okay. Oh, my gosh. Kristen, I didn't even know this was a thing. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know what? I was visiting our mutual friend who's back in Lebanon now. Okay, yeah. I was visiting her in Brooklyn. And she took me and a bunch of her friends took me to this bar in Brooklyn and they had live karaoke. And I was like, I didn't know this was a thing. 
And at live karaoke, instead of a digital um, menu of songs, you know, because the band has to play it, they have a book. And you have to choose a song from the book. And I did um, You Ought to Know by Alanis Morissette. Mm-hmm. Um, Great song. Oh, my gosh. I had so much fun. <laughs> live karaoke. There's... <laughs> Oh, I had so much fun. Um, anyway. There's a novel idea. Um, yeah. Tell me, Howard University, you, you you stepped into Howard University following in the Jesse Norman tradition. Yes. Um, how important yes. was Howard to your journey? Oh, my your, gosh. Your Howard college years. Howard saved my life. So when I left school for the arts, I actually went to Florida State University. Um, and... That was a really hard, that was really hard. Um, Tallahassee, Florida is so, like, <laughs> you know, you remember, I was born at, I was born at Howard University Hospital. I grew up in Baltimore, attended Baltimore School for the Arts, which despite the fact that it's a magnet school, you know, it's still 60, 40 black, white, you know, whatever. Um, Baltimore City is a black city that has had black mayors, so it has D.C., you know, there's thriving black middle classes in both cities. Um, You know, even as racist as Boston is, there are enough black professionals, and I was exposed to enough of them when I visit my grandmother there. Um, Tallahassee is a very special racist place. Um, And when you're a musician, um, when you're a young black um, aspiring opera singer, who, by the way, my voice has undergoing major transformation. So my voice was one way for three years in high school, and then all of a sudden I had a growth spurt senior year, and then things were just were all over the place. And what I didn't know back then is that my voice had just grown exponentially. Mm. And what that means is... Um, that the support needed to hold the voice, I needed so much more, like like so much more. And of course, you know, you can't fix that in a year. So when I started auditioning, unfortunately, the quality of the voice didn't come through. Um, except for one audition, I auditioned for the University of Miami. And the guy who was the head of the voice department at the time, I did a regional audition in D.C. And he had me do my audition. I sang my two songs. And he turns off the camera and he says to me, listen, I hear there's a voice in there. And there's something going on. So just do this for me. And he played some scales for me and asked me to do some vocal exercises for him. And I did them. And he said, that's what I thought. He said, okay, listen, I'm going to turn the camera back on. And I want you to do exactly what you just did for me. And he did some vocal exercises with me. I ended up getting into University of Miami at Coral Gables for uh, for classical voice performance. And it's actually a very competitive school, mm-hmm. period, to get into, let alone their, their music department. I had also gotten into Florida State and some other and some other schools, like University of Maryland College Park. I got into their honors program and their performance program. Um, Peabody Conservatory. Um, well, Miami was $27,000 a year. True. Okay. Yeah. Peabody was like 30, 32. 
Okay. At Johns Hopkins. FSU out-of-state tuition was 17000 a year. Okay. And I had met a black soprano who had gone to Florida State, I think to get her master's degree. Miami, honestly, probably would have been a great fit for me because they wanted me. I mean, the fact that that man took that time with me and recognized my voice and talent um, meant a lot. And, of course, hindsight's twenty twenty. I think that if I'd gone to Miami, things would have been different. But I ended up going to Florida State, Tallahassee. And, again, fear. So out of fear and doubt, in a conversation with a family member, I won't throw them under the bus in this interview, but a family member told me that I should double major in education and performance because I'll have something to fall back on. That, that, that's usually the uh, that's usually the advice. <laughs> and, unfortunately, apparently at Florida State University, at least back then, they very much frown upon that because they are a very selective music program as well. So despite the fact they auditioned, despite the fact that I got in for voice performance, the powers that be just decided that since I applied for both programs, I obviously couldn't decide what I wanted. And so instead of consulting with me, they chose for me. So when I went to sign up for classes during orientation, they had me listed as music education. Interesting. And when I questioned them about it, they said, oh, well, this is why we did this. But you can re-audition to, to get into the performance program. So you were essentially uh, kicked out? Without being talked to, consulted, or anything after I had already accepted admittance into the program. Wow. So anyway, um, again, the man at the time who was one of the heads of the voice department, I went to speak to him. And he says to me, I remember you. And I really liked your voice. And he said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put you in the studio of one of our best teachers. Work with her. And at the end of the year, we'll have you re-audition. Fine. Ended up working with this incredible woman, very kind woman, um, who also had a career. Wonderful teacher. Um, I did re-audition. And I did not get in. (laughs) Wow. And then, because of financial hardship, I registered for classes late, showed up for class in her studio, um, and, oh, I know what it was. I think it was second semester, I registered for classes late, tried to sign up. Either way, I tried to, I went to to her studio, and she says to me, oh, Amanda, my studio filled up. Why didn't you tell me that you were having trouble? I would have held a spot open for you. Well, how the heck was I supposed to know that? (laughs) <laughs> so I ended up getting a grad student, some PhD student who was getting their degree in education or something. I don't know. Um, needless to say, the lack of support, the overt dripping racism of the school, the fact that despite the fact that they had 600 students in the music department, there were six of us in the whole school. Um it just was a really bad experience for me. And there were some other things that happened to me as well, but some other tragedies, but those happened actually I had just after I decided to leave Florida state. Right. Um, I came home to visit my mom. I decided just to visit Howard because the funny thing is, is Howard, I never even considered Howard when I was looking for schools. Um, I did apply to Morgan. Um, 
you know, because I was in Baltimore. I didn't even think about Howard University. Um, but I decided just to visit because I was like, I got to get out of here. Because here's the thing. If you're in Tallahassee, Florida, as a black person or just any person pursuing a career in the arts, if you don't have the support of your institution, there's nothing else around to support your career. Because it's Tallahassee, Florida. Um, so I needed to either switch schools. I needed to switch schools, basically. So, um, And there were some other really terrible racist things that happened to me. Um, I kid you not, the assistant dean of the music program actually told me to consider switching to jazz. Ouch. Now, mind you, I had no jazz background. But, you know, black people just open their mouths and jazz just comes out, I guess. <laughs> Stereotype. <laughs> you know, I just looked at him like, bro, are you, you're, you're serious? Um, so I needed to get out of there. And so Howard was your savior in essence. Yeah. So I, I visited Howard's campus and I went to talk to the music music department. I called ahead. I, uh, you know, met with, met, met with um, Solomon and yeah, so, they were, they were very eager to have me. They were excited to have me. And you were excited to be there, obviously. Oh my gosh, Kristen Howard! Oh, <laughs> what a place! Um, so grateful, now, so grateful. While you were at Howard, you actually um, dabbled into which I what 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 I would assume was new territory. You became a pageant lady. Oh my gosh! Yes, I became a pageant lady. <laughs> what are some of the pageants that you, you entered uh, while at Howard? Oh, so, uh, okay, so, um, yeah, so when I got to Pat, so I got to, when I got to Howard, so, so here, here's like kind of like the short of it. So when I was at FSU, there was a sorority that I wanted to join, and the president of that sorority told me to enter some of the fraternity pageants that were happening at Florida State at the time, and I did one, because, you know, back then, my feminism kind of started, and I was like, oh, pageants are dumb, they're stupid, and but I really wanted to be in this sorority, so I said, okay, I'll sign up for this pageant. <laughs> and I actually ended up loving it. I didn't win anything because uh, the girl, two girl, the girlfriend, a girl who was dating, and the cousin of three members all placed one, two, and three, you know, whatever. But um, I, I had so much fun. Anyway, so I got to Howard, and <laughs> I just, I like, I think I threw myself into everything at Howard. I think I, I don't know. I got there and lost my mind in a great way. Um, I did everything. I was. Um, There's a quote. Lost my mind in a great way. I did. It was. It was like honestly. I feel like I was hot. People used to ask me, "Where do you get this energy from?" And I would tell people, "I am high on life right now." Um, Howard. Ugh. It was just like all of a sudden, I didn't have to try so hard to. To just exist. Um, yeah. And there were so many opportunities. And my talent was recognized and supported. Um, I mean, I remember Dr. Norris. I mean, I got a solo, like, my first semester at Howard on the Howard Choir. And that was a really big deal. And there are some people who weren't too happy about it. I'm sure. <laughs> but it is what it is. Whatever. Um, it was an honor. And, um, yeah, Howard just had so many opportunities. So, yeah, so anyway, there was, um, 
my first pageant at Howard, the Miss Black and Gold pageant. <laughs> and I got first runner up, so I was Miss Beta Chapter that year. Um, and then I decided to go out for Miss Howard, and that was a lot of fun. Um, I won Miss College of Arts and Sciences, the biggest school on campus. And I came in first runner-up for Miss Howard. Um, being on the homecoming court was such an honor and wonderful experience. And then I just kind of decided to take it to the next level. Um, and I started doing uh, bigger state pageants. So my first one was the Miss America pageant system. Um, and I actually was supposed to do it in 2004. Or, but was really sick. There's a lot of things that I, that I went through, and you know, I got, was like, I got hit by a car, and oh no, anyway, yeah, it was there's a lot that was going on with me. Um, so that kind of delayed my entry. So unfortunately, with the Miss America system, by the time I finally competed, um, it was the only year. It was the last year that I, of eligibility for me. Um, and Miss America is one of those pageant systems where you honestly really need to do it multiple times before you win. Um, or else, um, my mother actually bought me the book of the stories and biographies of different Miss Americas. There was one Miss America that actually won at her first shot. And this woman even says in her biography that she spent like an entire year doing nothing but training and preparing for Miss America. So, you know... Um, and, and you, then one and of the you judges, were trying to balance that with college. Oh, exactly. Um, yeah. And, and never having done this level of pageantry before. Um, and, uh, a judge actually came up to me after that pageant. Um, so the way that DC works is because it's not a state, they don't, so to states, what they do is they have like the smaller pageants. Like if I had competed in Miss Baltimore, for instance, which I was approached when I was in high school about being in the Miss Baltimore pageant. Um, but it was just something that was so foreign to my family that I didn't even bother. Um, but someone had approached me because of my talent and they said, you should do this. It's, it didn't even occur to me at the time that it was a prerequisite to the Miss Maryland pageant for Miss America. <laughs> so, yeah. I was about to ask you when you, when you started entering pageants, did your family, were they supportive or did they, cause I could, I could just imagine, you know, you were, classical singer and then all of a sudden you have an interest in pageantry were, were they accepting yeah i mean because by then i was in college so you know and again everybody's family's different my family just happens to be one where um emphasis was really on character and um you know my mother she's really funny if you ask her she'll tell you that ever since i was a baby people have been telling her to put me in pageants and she was like no 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 because she had this vision of me becoming this super shallow, like monster, um, mm. and or just thinking that looks looks would be such an emphasis on my life. And so, because I was in college before I got into them, my family was very supportive. Um, they were all there at the Howard pageant, um, you know. So by then, I was an adult making my own decisions. So they're like, "Yeah, sure, we'll support you." So they did. Um, but, um, yeah, so in D.C. there's no um, state prerequisite um, because it's not a state. So what, what they do is they have um, preliminaries. So everybody who wants to do Miss D.C. America, you all apply. And then there's, a, there's preliminaries where you perform your talent 
and then you have an um, interview um, before a panel. Um, and they, they actually, those are two preliminaries for Miss America. Same thing at the state level, same thing at the national level. Well, it's different now, but anyway, um, back then that's how it was. And based off of that, what they do is they choose the state finalists. Um, and so I made it to the, to the finals. And so I got to actually participate in the pageant on stage in front of the audience. Um, first time ever doing it. So technically I was in the top 10. Um, and, um, cause only the top 10 got to move on to the actual pageant. Um, incredible experience. Um, the woman who won Shannon Shambo, it was so funny. She came to me at the end and she ended up won- winning this congeniality, but she told me I voted for you. <laughs> <laughs> she was so sweet. Um, I actually wore an Afro. Ah, pioneer. I, I was, um, yes, I was now in 2005. If you're trying to win, that was not a smart move. <laughs> um, but it was more about the statement. It, it, it was, it was, there was a lot of different things. You know, part of it was, I was new. Part of it was, I thought my hair was beautiful. Part of it, part of it was, I wanted to stand out. Um, you know, there were a lot of different factors that went into my decision to wear it. And, and, and the way I wore it, it was a really beautiful manicured Afro with highlights and, you know, but it was an Afro and it was beautiful. And, um, um, you know, I, I wanted to stand out and I did, but, um, I did a spiritual. I did a deep river for my talent. Popular um, Negro spiritual. Yes. And you know what? It was such a beautiful experience. Um, and um, a woman who, a black woman who got first runner up is actually still a still very good friend of mine. Um, but, um, you know, I didn't, beyond the top 10, I didn't place. But, you know, again, my first time doing it, great experience. A judge came up to me after the pageant and says to me, we think you have so much potential. We really want you to do this again next year. Wow. And I looked at him and I said, oh, well, I'm 25. Yeah. <laughs> and he, his face dropped and he says to me, really? He said, oh, we didn't know. <laughs> so whatever that means. Um, but the bottom line is it was nice to get that kind of confirmation. Um, it was also kind of sad because I can only think about what could have been if I had had another shot. Um, but then I went on and I had an opportunity to do, uh, Miss Black USA. Um, I think what, oh yeah, I ended up just doing Miss USA pageant just to see, you know, I just did Miss America. I got my feet wet and, um, in the system. And so I went up, went out for the Miss USA, which is a completely different animal. There's no talent. It really is just how how beautiful the judges perceive you to be. Um, I ended up losing even more weight for that pageant. Um, again, didn't place, but it was a good experience. Um, graduated with my bachelor's in classical voice performance. Went away to Italy, studied, came back, decided to try again. And this time I really trained hard. I had lost so much weight. Um, I would think I was down to like 120 something, um, which for a very curvy woman, it's like, you know. And then and that's, that's actually how I ended up doing Miss Black USA. The woman who won Miss USA that year, Miss D- DC USA, Chelsea Rogers, was Miss Black USA. She rescinded her title 
for Miss Black USA so she could go to the USA pageant. I ended up being able to pick up the title, went to Miss Black USA, the national pageant representing D.C., placed in the top 15. Again, very exciting. Mm-hmm. Got to meet Lamont Rucker, who's one of the hosts, who is a mentor of mine now, which is really cool. Um, he looks out for me, checks in on me every once in a while, encourages me to not, you know, to not let go of my dreams. He's such a cool guy. And um, so I did that. And then through my good friend who uh, the black woman I mentioned earlier, she ended up going to Miss Black USA representing Maryland. She introduced me to the Miss International pageant system. And I got to meet TT, who was Miss DC International 2008. And that's how I ended up doing Miss International. And I won the Miss International pageant for DC and went to the Miss International pageant outside in, in Chicago. So anyway, that was my pageant. Pageant days. So Amanda, tell us, who who have you performed with and where? Oh, my goodness. Oh, geez. Oh, man, I have to really think about this. Uh, <laughs> so who have I performed with and where? Okay, so for the purpose of this interview, let's stick to music because, again, this is like... <laughs> oh, no, well, well, classical music. Well, I mean, okay. I mean, yeah, so because I've done a number of things. Like, actually, I've, I've performed with the Coffin Players in Baltimore, um... I had this great gig as like the narrator for the nativity, uh, the big nativity production. It was really cool. It's one of my first um, more acting slash oratory um, roles. But oh gosh, who have I performed with? I I went to Italy to study opera and physical theater during the two thousand six two thousand seven academic year, my second year of grad school. So I did perform in Arezzo, Italy. Um, do you speak Italian? I do, Italiano. Not as much as I used to, obviously. Body, I uh, I don't get to practice much, so. Um, Any other languages? Um, parlo un po' francés. Um, French is probably. I had an awesome French teacher in high school, Monsieur Tabenya. He was so great. So I do speak a little French, a little, little, little German. Didn't retain it as well as the French, um, some Spanish. So, yeah, so I did a, I, I did a um, concert in, in Arezzo. I got to do some rehearsals with an Italian choir, and I actually um, did a little bit of coaching with them on performing Negro spirituals. They were really interested, so I did some of that with them. I had the great privilege in 2010 of coming to the beautiful island of Anguilla um, <laughs> and doing a short concert there and getting to work with some amazing uh, church musicians. That was so much fun, by the way. Um, I would love to come back and do a full concert. That was, that was, that was honestly one of my best, one of my favorite experiences to this day. And the whole setting, the church was beautiful. Um, But yeah, I've been able to perform for prestigious events like, um, the African-American Civil War Memorial in D.C. had a big anniversary celebration. I got to perform for that. I am, I was the first person to sing the national anthem for the National Walk for Epilepsy. Um, I did that when I was Miss D.C. International in 2010. The Civil War Memorial was a performance I did when I was Miss Black USA. Um, 
I'm trying to think what else. What about um, in uh, I, Pittsburgh? Were you a member of the, am I saying this correctly, Philharmonic or? No. So here's what happened. When I, I moved to Pittsburgh. Okay, so <laughs> I moved to Pittsburgh. I actually met my previous voice teacher through my roommate, Miss Black West Virginia, when I was at Miss Black USA. Hmm. She lived in Pittsburgh but worked in West Virginia. And she was studying with a guy who was also the voice teacher of another former Miss Pennsylvania through the Miss America system. And at the time I had graduated, I had my master's degree. I kind of was just bartending in DC trying to figure out my next move. And this girl and I ended up becoming really great friends, Sonia McCord. And she was like, why don't you just come to Pittsburgh just to let him hear your voice? No harm, no foul. So I did. And I, and he, just said to me, listen, if you're my student, this is what I would do with you. This, 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 and this. This is what I think you could do with your voice. And it was a great lesson, and I decided to move to Pittsburgh to study with this guy. That was it, literally. And um, through my journey of moving to Pittsburgh, I applied for uh, the August Wilson Center for African American Culture back then had a fellowship program. And it was only around for three years. But by the time I moved to Pittsburgh, they were uh, applications for the second year were open. I applied. I got in. Um, and I got a $7,500 uh, fellowship stipend. And that money went to support the cost of my voice lessons. And I also got to perform a concert at the Office Wilson Center. Um, it, it was music written by and inspired, written by African American composers and inspired by music previously performed by other black opera singers. So it was a mixture of opera arias, spirituals, and, and I even did a couple of jazz songs. Um, it was so much fun. And I got to work with middle schoolers um, as part of my fellowship community outreach. So that was really cool. Um, in 2015, I was named the BNY Mellon um, Emerging Artist of the Year. And I got to perform a concert at the um, Carnegie Carnegie. So in Pittsburgh, it's not Carnegie, it's Carnegie. Ah. <laughs> and um, so Carnegie Hall, there's actually four Carnegie Halls. One in New York, three in Pittsburgh. Because, you know, this is actually the area where he made, made a lot of his money. Right. And um, there's a Carnegie Hall in Carnegie, Pennsylvania. Or Carnegie. And so that's where I performed that concert. That was, again, that was a really big concert for me because it was a very ambitious program. And I utilized every single facet of my voice. Mm. Um and so I just want to preface this quickly with the fact that I had graduated from Howard. And again, I mentioned a, long, a while ago about my voice changing drastically my last year of high school. Well, turns out everyone thought I had this little voice. But it turns out I have a really big, dramatic voice. And that's what was happening in high school with the growth spurt. Well, when I went to Italy to study... My teacher was like, yeah, you have a big voice. And that's when I first began to work on repertoire for um, spinto sopranos or sopranos who are on the cusp of being between lyric and full dramatic sopranos. Um, and I studied with Francesca Francalanchi 
and had several master classes with Jill Feldman, um, and um, who also invited me to her home for salons and really took me under her wing and encouraged me. Um, I uh, and they both were like, "Yeah, your voice is big." <laughs> I got to meet Evelyn Lear. So this is I can't. This, so this is a true story, and it's so random. My mother, sister, and I, and I think a family friend, were waiting in line to get breakfast at some restaurant in Rockville. And we just happened to be having a conversation about me singing. There's a black woman standing in the waiting area. Who happens to know Evelyn Lear? Hmm. Who happened to overhear my conversation? Who then says to me, listen, I know someone. I want you to meet them. Let me get your information. I kid you not, Kristen. <laughs> I ended up reaching out to the woman. I caught the, this is when I was living in D.C. I caught the Metro out to meet her. She picks me up and takes me to Evelyn Lear's house. <laughs> wow. Fate. <laughs> now, mind you, I knew I was going to meet Evelyn Lear at this time. But still, like this is how this all happened. I go out to Evelyn Lear's house, meet Evelyn Lear and her partner at the time. Oh, gosh, I don't even remember when this was. This was like, I don't know. It was obviously before I moved to Pittsburgh. This was a number of years ago. And um, she has me sing for her mm. in her kitchen. Mm. Just, And then she, she encouraged me. Sometimes it's good to speak loudly in public. You never know. You never know. You never know. <laughs> and she, and, and, and what's so funny is she not only encouraged me, but she told me the story of another person who once told her that he wanted to be a singer. And she said, yeah, maybe you should do something else. Ooh. But she encouraged me. And then I got to go out to eat with her. Outback Steakhouse was like one of her favorite restaurants at the time. The Blooming Onion. So the four of us go to Outback Steakhouse. It was summertime. She says to me, where's your sweater? I didn't have one. She says, oh, it gets cold in those restaurants. So she gives me a cardigan of hers to wear. And the four of us go out to Outback, and we talk about singing. And this was real advice that she gave me. Learn the arias and sing them better than anyone else. <laughs> now, so which actually kind of leads me to my next question. Um what is an aria? Like, what are the what are the the different types of opera? Oh, okay. So, 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 okay. Opera at its core, opera is literally it's 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 theater. It's theater. Opera is theater. Yes. And it's all sung. At its core, that is literally what opera is. And that's why you hear terms like rock opera. You know, I mean, jazz, opera, etc. Because opera at its core is literally a form of theater, of theater, where it's sung the entire time. Um, opera actually got its start because of the, the 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 theatrical performances of like the early early like Renaissance period, like the fourteen hundreds, with the, the Greek the Greek tragedies. Where, you know, they'd have the person come out there with a lyre, and they would open with a song, and then, you know, nymphs would be romping around to music, and, you know. Uh, 
<laughs> but but that is literally what opera is. An aria is a solo, a song for a solo voice in an opera. Ah. That is what an aria is. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Understood. Understood. Well, who who are some of your favorite opera singers? Like those oh, that you look up to. Gosh. Well, Maria Callas. I mean, so Maria Callas. Um, and that, and you'll hear a lot of people talk about her. I love her. Maria Callas is like the epitome of if I had, if I didn't have to worry about money Mm -hmm. and I had the time I needed, I would have the work ethic and rigor of a Maria Callas. Um, and to be fair, I do because it's how I've been able to get as far as I have and maintain my foot in the world of opera, despite having to work and going to school and having a family, et cetera. Um, but Maria Callas, worked hard harder than almost anybody maria Callas would never perform an opera unless she was fluent in the language which is why i don't think she ever performed or or at least recorded in german Mm -hmm. um she would do like italian versions of german operas and if and you have or category or a repertoire and that's it you don't do anything else you don't cross over Maria Callas is like listen I'm doing this I'm doing that I'm doing that I'm doing this up here I'm gonna do some bel canto I'm gonna go over here now and you know do some strauss because I'm a singer I'm an artist I adapt and I also understand the what my voice needs to be healthy so I'm not gonna overdo it um but I love listening to Callas recordings she I love the fact that she uses her vocal technique to sometimes make less pretty sounds, but it, it, it intensifies and gets the emotion across. So it's not just about being a pretty voice for her. It was about really being a great actor and artist and, and, and bringing the music alive. Um, Kirsten Flagstad, um, the great Wagnerian soprano, I can listen to her sing all day long. Um, Leontine Price. I actually got to see Leontine Price perform her uh, retirement concert at Meyerhoff Symphony Hall. My mother took us. Mm-hmm. I'm so grateful. She did five encores, ended with This Little Light of Mine on a high seat. And Crispin, let me tell you, it's almost like you could see the laser focus of that last note go from the stage straight through the back of the building at the Meyerhoff Symphony Hall. I mean, she... Uh, is, that, is, that, is, that, is, is that something mm-hmm. opera singers pride themselves on? Like, what the, the highest note they can hit? Is that a thing? Well, if, you're, if you're a soprano or a tenor, I mean, because that's where the money is. Ah. <laughs> I mean, listen, everyone loves Pavarotti because what? He can sing those high notes, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What's yeah. the what's the highest note that you can hit? Ooh. Um, okay, now now you're making me pull out my music theory. Oh Lord. Um so the the highest note that I can hit is an F F sharp above high C. The highest note that I can sing well is probably closer to a D sharp above high C, but I'm working on my E. I'm very diligently working on my high E. I have I pride myself on my range. It's a very good range. So basically, I'm a full dramatic soprano with a great upper range and a fuller lower register, um, which means, and, and this is very controversial, um, I also can sing mezzo repertoire. And 
Um, a lot of people don't like that because, you know, mezzo-sopranos have a more limited repertoire than sopranos do. So there's some people who believe that you should let mezzos have their repertoire. But again, if you can sing it, you sing it. Obviously, the difference is that mezzos have a certain quality to their voice. So I'll never have that specific quality. But like Carmen, Carmen is a mezzo role. And there's plenty of dramatic sopranos who have performed Carmen. Mm. Just like there are plenty of mezzo sopranos who have a high extension who have sung dramatic soprano roles. You know, Maria Callas, again, has done mezzo soprano roles. There's recordings of her doing the Abanero from Carmen, and everyone knows that she's a soprano. Is anyone going to tell? Is anybody going to tell Maria Callas? You know, we don't want you to sing Carmen because it's a mezzo role. <laughs> so, how, how, how many octaves uh, in total? What's your range in terms of octaves? Oh, geez, man, you're going to ask me a bunch of questions. Let me let me go over to the keyboard and just take a look. Um, so one, two, two. I would say comfortably three and a half. Three and a half octaves. Interesting. Maybe a little, maybe closer. Let me call. Let me take a little look. Let me see. Um, it's been a while since I've thought about this. This film. That's oh, one, two. Hold on. Let's fiddle. It's one, two, three. Yeah, I would say close to um three and a half. Three and a half octaves. Mm-hmm. Maybe a little little more, but close to three and a half. Impressive. You mentioned Carmen. What are some of your other uh, favorite operas? Oh. Oh, 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 oh. Uh, <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, favorite operas. So favorite operas are operas I'd like to sing, or both? Uh, well, yeah, both. Those that you like to sing, and then those that you're just, you know, a fan of. Okay, so so aspiring roles include um um hold on oh so Turandot um oh it's that is like one day <laughs> oh. one day um one day I'm just I will sing that role even if I got to do it for myself but. In Cuesta Regia by, uh, from Turandot is one that I love that aria. And it's actually one that I worked on a lot with my former teacher. Um, love that aria. I'd love to perform it one day. Um, I mean, Puccini, <laughs> Puccini's operas are just, you know, um, but Turandot, um, I, I love... Um, Mbeldi from Madame Butterfly is a, such a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. But there, let me, I'm trying to think. Um, Mephistophele. There's another. There's another aria from Mephistophele, and I'm trying to. I uh, see. I wish I had. had so there's a, a composer named Boito. So there's other lesser known composers or lesser. I just say less people know of them. People in opera know of them, but you know, as far as mainstream goes, Mephistophele is another beautiful opera. I love Strauss operas. Um, so Zalame by by Strauss is a really dark, um, very German. Um, the final aria in that scene is literally Zalame. She is singing. She is literally singing to the severed head of John the Baptist for like twenty minutes. Oh. And- 
Oh, is this horror opera? <laughs> but it's amazing. And <laughs> it's amazing. It's amazing. It's amazing. It's amazing. <laughs> Even that would get banned from MTV. Listen, but it's it's <laughs> it's just so like it's so great. I got to go to the Met a couple of years ago when I was in New York for something, um, you know, non-opera related for work. And um, it's, uh, they they performed um, Tristan and Isolde by Wagner. Uh, I would love to do Wagner operas. That opera, it made me cry. It just, uh it's so beautiful. I mean, there, there's so many. I mean, there's there's Mozart operas that are fun and comic that would be enjoyable to perform. I'm actually working on producing an opera right now. Tell us about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I've been in Pittsburgh for a number of years and I've had great, you know, I've gotten highlights and commendations and I've had people tell me how great I am and I've met opera singers. I actually got to meet Jessie Norman a few years ago at her book signing. Oh, wonderful. Um, She's actually, to this day, still the only black woman who's ever performed Wagner for a major opera company. Oh, I got to see Kathleen Battle. Oh, Kristen. Yes. My mom took me to see Kathleen Battle yes. before in 2010 at the Candy Center. I got to meet her, and she hugged me. This is this um, is opera, opera royalty. Tell me. Listen, all the women, I mean... I got to meet Harlan Blackwell with the Howard Choir. I got to do Carmen Jones, the production, and, and Harlan Blackwell performed. Vanessa Williams performed as Carmen Jones. Uh, that, was, that was amazing. Um, I got to sing with the Joyce Garrett Choir for the Kennedy Center Honors a couple of times. So being on stage with this giant choir accompanying Sting, that was amazing. For the Bruce Springsteen um, tribute, that was so cool. Um but anyway, I digress. So I've been in Pittsburgh for a number of years now. And, you know, I told you I've met all these famous people. Uh, you know, people like Evelyn Lear have encouraged me. Howard was great. I learned a lot. I went to Italy, studied hard. My voice grew. It got so much big, bigger and better. And again, being encouraged by professionals. And then I came back here and it was just like nothing. Um, and so... You know, after a number of years of auditioning, 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 and trying to go the quote-unquote traditional route, you know, at some point, you're just like, this is dumb, and you have to make a decision about, are you going to continue torturing yourself in this way, um, or do something different? Correct. So I finally just told my teacher, I said, look, this is not working. (laughs) And, you know, and in the arts, many people have had to be creative with creating their own opportunities, even the people who are, who end up being famous. Um, you know, you have to find your, your thing. Um, even the Jesse Normans of the world, you know, yes, if it's about being in the right place at the right time and having, I mean, her talent was, oh, she's missed. But, um you still have to have someone that supports you and you have to find a way to make yourself stand apart. Agreed. So we began playing with the fact that, um, and I, I know I'm all over the place here and I'm sorry, but I think I told you that my um, big concert at the Carnegie Carnegie <laughs> was very <laughs> ambitious because it covered every single facet of my voice. So I have a very large voice 
it also has the flexibility so i could do color tour runs as well which is not common there are not they call them um dramatic color tour sopranos they're not common um an example of a dramatic color tour aria is actually the queen of the night aria uh from the magic flute by mozart mm-hmm. um Edda Moser is a great was a great opera singer, and she sang a lot of these dramatic coloratura arias. A lot of people don't realize that Queen of the Night is actually supposed to have a really big voice, but um, because of the decline in support and also the extreme privilege and money it takes to be an opera singer, um, there are fewer and fewer dramatic sopranos because dramatic soprano voices peak much later in life which means that unless you're fortunate enough to start working as a lyric soprano and then transition into dramatic repertoire, you basically have to train, 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 train until one day you're in your thirties and forties and you start working. Wow. And yeah. And for singers and artists, that doesn't really work. <laughs> um, and so um, anyway, there's this great article that was in Opera News several years ago from the former director of the Seattle Opera who talks about the decline of the dramatic voice and how you now have smaller voices that are even being mic'd now to make up for the loss of the, the volume. So anyway, that's actually supposed to be, the, the Queen of the Night aria is actually supposed to be a dramatic voice, but you hear a lot of smaller voices because they don't, a lot of big voices also don't have the flexibility of the coloratura um, runs. Um, but I also mentioned that being a dramatic and what are the, and what are those? Oh, okay, like so runs. So like you you heard people in church sing runs in gospel music. Of course, it's the same thing in opera. The difference is that in some cases they're written out, and in some cases the composer gives you license to create your own. Ah. So the equivalent of of scatting in jazz. Exactly. Interesting. Interesting. Now, speaking of the voice. Yes. Um, realistically speaking, and, and you said something very interesting just now, that some people don't get an opportunity to work until their 40s. But, you know, my next question was, in terms of the voice, how long does it take someone to go from having an interest in opera to actually being able to perform uh, with a symphony. What does that timeline look like? See, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Industry standard will tell you, you go to school and you study. And while you're an undergrad, if you go to a school that's big enough, you start doing early opera training then. And then after you leave undergrad, then you either get your master's degree or you go to an opera training program. You know, and then after that, then if you're really good, you get an agent, then the agent starts shopping you around, and in the meantime, you're doing a bunch of auditions, and you're entering competitions, and so, and so, what they don't tell you is that essentially, there's gatekeepers along the way. So the gatekeepers are the ones who say, yeah, you're now you get into this school and this prestigious program at Eastman or Peabody or Florida State or Miami or USC or New England or Oberlin, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So you have gatekeepers there. Then you have the gatekeepers who then say, okay, we've gotten to this program. So now you get to actually have solos 
um, or the starring role in the opera at the opera workshop at the college. And then you go to audition for these competitions in New York, which, by the way, are all run by the same organizations. Hmm. There are three major competitions in New York City, and they're all run by one single organization. So if you have a voice that one of them likes, chances are you're going to win or do well in all three. Okay. And vice versa. It's quite difficult then. So so from start to finish, we're talking minimum 10 years. Oh, minimum. But again, it depends. If you know the right people, ah. if you know the right people, because here's the thing, you wouldn't believe how many people want to be opera singers. Like, you would be shocked. To find yeah, I was going to ask about that. Like, you know, is there is there There's a demand? Tons. Oh, there are tons of people who want to be opera singers. I'm, I'm guessing it's not for the money or, or am I to be corrected? It's not. There's, there's something, again, I talked to you earlier about being an opera diva. Being an opera star is, it is revered and respected in a way that's just very different from other genres. Mm -hmm. It's just different. It's just different. And, and again, there's something so accomplished about being able to say, even now with the, um, you know, the things I've been able to do, I meet people who are like, wow, you sing opera yeah the perception is i understand what you're saying i do understand what you're saying what are again money can't buy that understood understood i mean well, money, money buys the opportunity to try but you know <laughs> <laughs> what, what, and by the way all those competitions cost money to apply i mean how much is it is it uh, thousands or well, it ranges from twenty-five to up to seventy-five or hundred bucks, depending on which competition it is. Wow! 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 Mm -hmm. Wow! And then you have to travel. Then you have to pay the accompanist. Sometimes you have to pay the accompanist fee. It's an expensive venture, <laughs> dude. It is being an opera singer is literally one of the most expensive careers a person can ever go into. Wow! Wow! What What are some of the things that you? That opera singers used to preserve their voice and like, or or like, I know it, the the training must be quite rigorous. But what are some of the things that that you guys have to go through that other genres may not necessarily have to go through? So you have to be very conscious. I mean, so you you only have one vocal one set of vocal cords. That's it. There's no you can't cut out and replace and stitch in new ones. So once they're gone, they're gone. Um, and if you damage your chords, that damages your range, the ability to make certain sounds, and really lessens what you can perform. So you have to be conscious every single day of how much you're using your voice. Um, speaking actually can be, well, it depends on how you speak. But even the way that I speak, I have to be conscious of if I'm talking too much, if I'm speaking in a register that's actually not good for me. So... Um, you know, there was a theory when I was younger that I spoke in a register that was too low for my voice. Some people thought I was supposed to be talking up here. <laughs> but, of course, we found out that I have, a, I have a fuller range. So this is actually okay for me. But um, um, yelling and screaming is really bad. So, you know, that's good or bad for my, my, my young son because it means that 
and mommy gets really mad at him one day. It's like, you know what? I really want to yell at you right now, but I can't. So I have to save my voice. Right, right, right. <laughs> Except for mommy also projects. So that's a whole other thing. <laughs> um, sing his punishment. Singing. Um, singing. You know, you're not supposed to sing for prolonged periods of time or you have to build up the stamina so you don't damage your voice. Um, you know, um, if I'm practicing, when I am going up to my higher register, I have to be very conscious of how much, how often I'm doing it. So I, you know, again, I don't wear the voice out, damage it. Um, sleep. Once you sleep, drinking enough water. Um, being conscious of, of, of how different foods affect me. Being mm. dehydrated is really bad for the voice. Um, I mean, see, people don't realize that singers are athletes. Indeed. And you got to take care of your body. I mean, if you take care of your body, take care of your voice, you can sing well into your 60s and 70s. Indeed. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Singers are athletes. Well, uh, they are. What do you enjoy most about? I, I think you touched on it a bit earlier, but yeah. what is it? What is it about performing uh, that you enjoy the most? So, um, what I love about singing. So, Jesse Norman, when I met her, I told her that I was starting to study Wagner, and she said to me, "What does it feel like?" I told her that. It was like breathing, but but not just breathing. It felt so. It, how do I describe this to you? So, um, when I first began to study Wagner, and I really and it began to click with my voice, my body was just working as this perfect machine, and the way that the air fills you, and you know, with Wagner specifically, and some other arias, you ride these waves of these long, beautiful phrases. And that's literally what it feels like. And, and music, you know, music is, is um, it's sound. It's, and I know that sounds stupid, but vibrations actually have an effect, a physical effect on people. Well, it also has a physical effect on the singer. Breathing in that way and releasing the air in that way into those beautiful sounds and that beautiful phrasing, um, being able to perform this beautiful music that these composers wrote, and, and being able to deliver it in a way that sounds as beautiful as it does. And then seeing the way that it touches people, seeing the effect it has on people. Um, I'm always so humbled. Mm. There's this couple, there's this couple in, in, in Pittsburgh and the last name is Irish, but um, they love everything Italian. <laughs> <laughs> and they come to hear me whenever I perform, they show up. They're just lovely people. They actually opened up, and I hope they're doing okay right now with COVID-19, um, but a couple of years ago, they actually opened up a place where they teach people how to make pasta, and they, they sell, like, olive oil and balsamic vinegar. Right? Like, But um, they love my voice, and they always talk to me about how much they enjoy it. And so it's the, it's the, it's the double pleasure of enjoying the performance of it and and just being in the moment with it and the singing of it, but then seeing the way that it affects and touches and the gratitude that people in the audience have after they've heard you sing. For me, the greatest compliment is when people cry. Mm. When people come up to me afterwards with tears in their eyes and they just tell me, you you, you make me cry. Like, 
you know that you've made them feel and experience something, and that's what art is supposed to be. Right. That's what I enjoy. Evoke emotion. Yes, that's what I enjoy. Um, that that's I, that's what I love about it. Mm. I, I love the way that I can touch and affect people. Um, you know, um, yeah. Indeed, indeed. Mm. Can you? I know this is probably a bit difficult to speak about, but yeah. it's something realistic particularly as a woman of color, what are some of the difficulties and uh, the politics involved in opera? (laughs) Oh, man. So I think I already told you that just like anything else about who you know. And with opera, the gatekeepers have a lot more power than other industries. Um, I I mean, I would say even more power because... It's an old, 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 very white institution. And there are certain individuals who feel that only certain individuals should have access. Um, And. (sighs) But there's, I mean, despite gatekeepers, um, seems as if that there are women of color that are getting through those gates. There, yes, there, there are. But, and again, though, the gatekeepers decide who and how many. Right. So, so that's what I was wondering. Is, is it that, yeah, I mean, is it that those that get one, through are highlighted because they're so correct. rare? They're highlighted because they're so rare, but they're also highlighted because the companies get to say, look at us, we hired a black person. Understood. Now, this is not to take away from the people who have made it, because again, just like anything else, if you're black and you've made it, it means that you had to be 10 times better than the white person next to you. So you know that those black and those black singers are awesome. Hmm. You know, I mean, and there are there are singers who are up and coming, but again, they're the rarity, which is why we talk about them. And we should talk about them because representation is important. And, you know, let's just be realistic. You know, if you still think about the numbers of white people performing opera, even, you know, people in, in, in Asia who are performing, um, the numbers, you know, far outnumber still disproportionately um, black singers. And there are black people who have trained in opera and are singers. And it's so bad that these days the only way black people get to perform is if someone decides to do an all-black casting of an opera. Or Porgy and Bess. (laughs) Or Porgy and Bess. (laughs) Which, by the way, is an opera. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's... it's, And and so, actually, I I mentioned this briefly. So the production that I'm working on... um, Yes, please go a little more in-depth into that. So I've been doing equity work. Um, my work that pays bills um, is also something I'm very passionate about. I, I've been doing equity work for a number of years. And so um, I decided, I, I finally figured it out that my way of finding opportunities for expressing myself through my art is cre- trying to create greater equity. And it's, it's, it's in, this kind of goes back to the idea that artists are also activists. Um, anyone who says that art and politics should be separated, they don't really support artists. They support entertainers. True artists are activists, Mm. period. 
period. That's just the way that it is. Um, true artists engage in politics because that's art is meant to evoke, to highlight, etc. So you're um, so you're not so, of the of the of the school that says, you know, go on stage and sing. We don't want to hear a political opinion from you. That's stupid. Listen, here's the thing. As a black woman, my entire life is political. My actual survive the fact that I have survived, that I'm still alive, that I have accomplished what I've accomplished, that in itself is actually radical. Because I'm not supposed to have been able to accomplish the things that I have because the systems are set up so that I'm not supposed to. But I'm still here. So my entire life is political. It's a political act every time someone hires me to do anything. You know, me performing outside of Black History Month is is political. Me performing for Black History Month is political. There's no such thing. And again, true artists, their work is steeped in politics and, and expression of the world around them. You know, everything that Pavarotti did was political. Everything that Callis did was political. Everything that these are, I mean, deciding to sign on with one company and not another. Um, performing certain arias. Um, you know, Jesse Norman has this great video uh, interview where she talks about um, performing a Wagner opera and why that was such a big deal. Um, I, so anyway, my my production, it's, it's um, a social justice project just as much as it is an opportunity. So we are producing the opera Songs from the Uproar by Missy Mazzoli. She's a woman composer. She wrote this opera, or I should say it was first performed in 2012. It's a chamber opera that where the instrumentation includes an electric bass guitar, electronic music, pre-recorded like music. Um, yeah. And it's about Isabel Everhart, this white lady who mm-hmm. went through this journey, moved to Algiers when she was in her twenties, dressed as a man, um, <laughs> okay. married a guy from Algeria, converted to Islam before she married the guy, by the way, um, and then died in the flood. Oh, no. Um, but um, we are producing this opera. It's going to be an all-woman production. Excellent. So this means that the producers, directors, PR people, stage managers – all the musicians and all the musicians, including the singers, everybody involved in this project is going to be a woman. And we're trying to bring diversity and intersectionality in terms of the women involved. Um, the two lead producers are two black women. I'm actually the artistic producer, and my friend Shonda Miles is the line producer. And um, we're working with an all women's early music ensemble, Casilla Ensemble. It's mostly white women who perform for the symphonies, perform with the, with the Pittsburgh Symphony Orchestra, the Pittsburgh Ballet Orchestra, and the Pittsburgh Opera Orchestra. And they also uh, travel the country performing uh, music written by women. Um, and what we're doing is we're highlighting the disparity in opportunities for women in the performing arts, in or in, in the symphony orchestra, in opera, etc., um, and the difference in opportunities in being producers, in being artistic directors, in being soloists, um, the the special um, barriers facing um, Black women, etc., and also pay equity or the inequities in pay 
Um, not just because um, certain places are still not paying women the same as men, despite the fact that some of these jobs are unionized. But if women are not allowed or, or given opportunities to be artistic directors, they're never going to get paid as much as men because they make a lot more money than, you know, other roles in opera. Right. The same thing with the conductor. If you don't, if women aren't given opportunities to be conductors, they're never going to make the same amount. If women aren't given as many opportunities to be first chair in the orchestra, they're never going to make the same amount. If women and black women are not given opportunities to be lead producers or lead soloists, they're never going to make as much money as they would if they're in the chorus. So it's a social justice piece, but it's also, I got tired of being told how good I am and not being given quote unquote opportunities by the gatekeepers. So I said, you know what? I'm doing my own thing. I'm really good. I've built a great network here. I have broad support. I'm doing this myself. Awesome. And I actually put together this group slash coalition of, of people. I approached Casilla Ensemble. I approached Shonda Miles and Damascus Theater Collective. They love the idea. They're doing it with me. Um, we applied for several grants. We finally got our first grant in the fall from the um, Opportunity Fund. I got $10,000 to go towards this project. Congratulations. Um, our goal in raising the money is we're going to pay everybody because we don't believe in asking women to an artist to give up their labor and not get paid because women don't get paid too often. Um, you know, we have a goal of raising about 50 K plus, um, but, um, you know, I don't know how it's going to work out with COVID-19, but we're looking to, uh, perform to do at least two to three performances next May of 2021. And I am, I am, I am performing the starring role. So next May we, we, we can look forward to Amanda Lewis's first major production. Exactly. Exactly. Because I have performed, but... Um, this is this your is my, baby. This is my baby. And what I'm really proud about is I actually... So um, I have a, a dear friend. She's so talented. Her name is Lady Dane. She is a beautiful black trans woman artist, singer, actor, activist. And she has written a number of books and plays and my very first production was actually last June. Um, we raised the money to bring her to Pittsburgh to, to, to perform excerpts um, of her work for black trans girls. So that was actually my first foray into producing. And I'm very excited because um, this opera is going to be my second official production, but my first opera production. And so it's just my way of saying, you know what? I'm creating my own opportunities, but there's so much more that I have to offer to opera besides auditioning for people and waiting in the wings for someone to say, okay, now we choose you. So, so am I mistaken? Uh, are you in the actual production or are you just producing? Oh, no, no. I'm starring in it. Oh, that's okay. That's I, I was wondering. <laughs> I was wondering. I was wondering. I missed that part. Do, 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 I miss I'm that also part. Starring in it. I miss that part. That's wonderful. I mean, yes, you do. Sometimes you have to create your own opportunities when um, the masses aren't ready to hear you, you know. And then they yeah. let them turn around and say, "Oh, okay, this is different." Especially when you when you've um, 
when you acquire a following, yep, yeah, you know, the proof is in numbers, right? Exactly, and that's why that's what has been so frustrating because I'm um, people have been like, uh, "When are you performing next? When are you performing next?" And the again, the so-called gatekeepers are like, "Oh no, not now, not now." She was like, "You know what? Forget y'all. Let me create my I'll, now." Yeah, uh, you know, um, my 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 friend. Uh, I don't know. You, you may remember him, Alexi, Alexi Pesquin, um, from Howard the Artist. Hmm. He, he's now true. like an internationally renowned like <laughs> artist, and he was in Pittsburgh not long ago. Um, he was brought in to talk about being a black French artist, and uh, we had this conversation about black artists and how. Because of all the barriers facing us, we are forced to create our own. But out of that creation ends up being something so beautiful. And he's correct. And it's also very frustrating because think about all that black artists could do if they didn't have to worry about those additional barriers. Right. Right. But at the same time, it's like, you know what? This is who I am. I have trained for this. I have a following. I've trained with some of the greatest teachers. Um, my teacher now, who's just incredible, and I, I miss her. Um, <laughs> I actually started studying with her um, when I was pregnant because I was ready to, ready to jump back in. So obviously giving birth and then you know, social distancing will kind of put a dampener in voice lessons. <laughs> I would but imagine. You know, but she's phenomenal. And, um, you know, it's um, it's really, I'm doing my thing. And, you know, I have the talent, I have the education, I have the experience. And I've been very encouraged by the support that I've gotten um, and the people who believe in me. And, you know, at the end of the day, one of the most important things about being an opera singer is you have to have this extreme amount of con- Oh, baby has made an appearance. Oh, that's fine. <laughs> Welcome to the yeah. planet. <laughs> you have to make you have to have an extreme amount of confidence. Um like you literally have to go out on the stage every day and say, Look, I know I'm good. Even if you don't think I'm good, I know I'm good. Enjoy what you're about to hear. Like that's that level of confidence. You do. And, you know, it took me, I, I'm, it took me a long time to get there. Um, and it more so was just the point where it's like, you know what? I just decided I didn't need anybody else's permission anymore. Mm. Because in opera, they tell you that you need, when they tell you you have to get this degree, when they tell you that you have to win this competition, when they tell you you have to audition for these people, they're basically telling you that those individuals have to give you permission to move forward. You know, and I just, go ahead. I just, no, I just never imagined that, well, or maybe I did, that it would be that intense in the world of opera, you know? That's why people quit. That's why people quit. That's why it, it's the opera is the long game. It's a marathon. So it's, what? What, uh, what motivates you? Why haven't you quit? Because I love it so much, and I and I, you know, but you know what? The, the truth is, 
it's my support system. Um, so my mother, um, <laughs> there were times when I feel like she was dragging me across the finish line because I'd just be like, I can't do this anymore. It's too hard. <laughs> and then she always reminds me of what they told me at Baltimore School for the Arts. If it was easy, everybody would be doing it. Um, <laughs> it's true. Um, it is true. You know what else it is, Kristen? It's um, it's in the times in 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 those hours where, in those periods of my life where I literally am like, am I really good enough? I can't do this. You know, God has placed people in my life who just tell me, you're great, you're great, you're great. And not just people, but people who are part of the industry, who know what they're talking about, who are, I mean, again, Evelyn Lear. Like, this woman was notorious for having, you know, very specific, um, she had no problem telling people that she thought were terrible. A chance encounter with this woman who made it a point of telling me that she has told people who she thought was not very good, how she gently and very nicely encouraged them to do different something else, told me to keep singing. I mean, you know, my, my former teacher had a, had a career in Europe, loves my voice, loves my voice. My teacher in Italy, Francesca. Loves my voice. Jill Feldman encouraged me. Loved my voice. Um, the people that my following, people who are like, Amanda, you're so good. Um, you know, the fact that I continue to get opportunities, um, it, it's, it's, there's been people along the way who have encouraged me um, when I needed the, the most. Right, and I think that has helped. But I think that coupled with the fact that I have not let up, that I have continued just to to every day put one foot in front of the other. Hmm. Yeah, it's and I told you for artists, you don't choose to be an artist. Art chooses you. So, you know, my existence. How how does one Um, figure that out though? Like. If you are trying to do something that's a waste of time, or if or if art has chosen you, yeah, no, art chose me because I mean, seriously, who in their right mind, unless they have like a sponsor, you know, gets up every day and says, "I'm going to do this really, really, really hard thing that probably 0.02 percent of the world ever actually attains," and um. You know, uh, it's super expensive, and you have to spend hours working at it. Um, yeah, and then, you know, and then I'm going to date this guy who I'm eventually going to marry, but before we even get engaged, I'm going to explain to him that under no uh, circumstances am I giving up on my art, and voice lessons cost a lot of money, and that will continue to be a part of the budget, and um, we're not going to stop these lessons, so... If you try to choose, force me to choose between you and my art, um, it's going to be my art. So, oh, that's that, that. that's passion, that's dedication. I mean, it is what it is. So, <laughs> just know that. <laughs> Please sign here. <laughs> I mean, it's just let's, just just let's be honest, and uh, 
know what you're getting into and yeah um so, so do, do do opera singers put stuff like that on match.com or you know? <laughs> <laughs> Please note. <laughs> you know what's so funny? My former teacher, I'll never forget this. He actually had uh, my now my now husband and I to dinner with him and his, his wife when we got engaged. And um, they had us to dinner. And they just sat down and had a very honest conversation with us about what it's like to be married to an opera singer. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Yeah. That must have been a conversation. But what what advice would you do? You, do you have for you know the fifteen year old that's coming up now and is as fascinated with opera as you were? What are some of the things that you would tell them? What are some of the must dos in order to at least uh, try to ensure success? You know, I'm going to be very honest. I would tell a fifteen year old enjoy it. Like, that's honestly the first thing that I would say. I think part of the, I'm going to say failure of the American system, and this is American system doing anything. In America, in the United States, I should say, we put work above everything. Mm. And art is supposed to be enjoyable for the artist. Otherwise, why the heck are you doing it? And so you hear all these stories about teachers and voice teachers and, and music teachers who chastise and throw things at their students. And there are some, I mean, seriously, coming up in, in college, there are students who had this one teacher who would throw things. And I don't even think she was American, but she would throw things. And people would go, oh, yeah, I'm with so-and-so. And she throws things and she's crazy, but she's a great teacher. And it's like, um, that's called abuse. <laughs> um, and you know, but back then it's like, oh yeah, that's so cool. Yeah. She's such a great teacher and, and students couldn't wait to get into her studio and be yelled at and have things thrown at them. You know, my teacher in Italy, Francesca, her four American students, one day she says to us all, listen, you are coming into your voice lessons, super stressed out. Why are you stressed out? And we all told her because we don't want to mess up. And she's like, um, yeah, this is a lesson. That's the point. Mm. Your job is to learn. My job is to teach you. And so she actually uh, told us all that um, Francesca made us all take a week off. And she told us just for, for one week, only do things that bring you pleasure and make you happy. Mm. And then she said, then come back to me. And so there's times when I get really stressed out and I have to remind myself that I'm supposed to be having fun. So first and foremost, if you're not having fun singing opera, then think about why it's not fun for you or think about doing something else. But it should be fun and enjoyable. When you get on stage and perform for people, you should enjoy it. And surround yourself with people who encourage your love of it, who, you know, so that's number one. Number two, um, I would say, I know reading is a thing that people don't do as much anymore, but I would say uh, read. Read biographies of opera singers. 
you know, learn about who they are, who they were, what they went through, what they did to get to where they are. Um, listen, 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 listen to recordings, listen to different recordings, listen to recordings of the same person at different times of their life with different, different places. Um, go to live performances as much as you can. Um, and again, don't go to the live performance just to learn, but also to enjoy, you know, it's both. Um, and find a teacher who makes you feel good, but also helps you to grow. It's really important that artists are able to be comfortable with being uncomfortable in terms of stretching their artistry. But for singers, you need a teacher who's going to support you um, and your development in a safe, constructive way, but also doesn't make you feel bad about yourself. You know, mm. if the teacher's constantly chastising you for your voice, then find a new teacher. But also, do your work. It's um, It does require work. If you don't put the time in, just like anything else, you will get back what you put in. So be realistic about what it is that you want to do. If you're the kind of person who doesn't have the kind of discipline to spend hours working, listening, then opera is probably not for you. You can do it for fun, but it's not going to be your career because it's a lot of work. Um, you know, but again, first and foremost, have please have fun. Please have fun with it. Great. And, you know, and also, too, Remember that um, art, just like anything, you know, some people are going to like it. Some people aren't. So if one person tells you they don't like your voice, you know what? It, it, it's going to happen. There are people who thought that Maria Callas had an ugly voice. Now, I think that's the most ridiculous, sacrilegious thing that anyone can ever say. But there are people who prefer, you know, Montserrat Caballé's voice. Montserrat Cavalier has a beautiful voice. But there are some people who believe that if you liked one, you couldn't like the other, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, kind of like the whole, um, this is going to sound funny, but it's kind of like the whole, like, Christian Aguilera versus Britney Spears or NSYNC versus Backstreet Boys. There were people who were team Cavalier and people who were team Callis. You're, you're such a 90s kid. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Or, okay, Brandy versus Monica. Still 90s, but at least it's a black and R&B. Um. Still going on. <laughs> so, Amanda, what is your ultimate goal? Like, what what do you uh, want to accomplish professionally at the end of all of this? At the end of all of this, my goal is to continue to produce and perform. So, after Songs from the Uproar is done, I'm actually going to be um, working on producing and commissioning a new opera about a great black woman, black American woman to tell her life. And again, to perform in the role and it'll be a new opera, new, new music, new everything. Um, that is actually my next project after songs from the uproar. And what I'm hoping is one day that that's what I'll do full time is produce and perform. So, you know, Continue to working with my great uh, voice teacher who I'm with now. Continuing to work on the arias and music that I enjoy singing. 
um, and get to a point where I'm doing less auditioning and having more people just inviting me to perform um, and continuing to create my own opportunities to perform because turns out I have really good ideas and I'm, and I'm not bad at it um, and I'm pretty good at it. So my goal is to do my work, but also, you know, I'm an equity professional. I'm an activist. I was an activist at Howard and I realized that I shouldn't be trying to separate those two things, that they're both part of who I am. And so my goal is to try to not only create opportunities for me, but for other black women, women of color, trans women, um, women at intersections to have their stories told, their work highlighted, um, you know, to change the face of representation, to change the way that opera presents itself and who the gatekeepers are, to change the standards, you know, um, you don't have to do the, the production of Lava Limb the same way every single time with the same people. Oh, my gosh. Um, you know, it's like um, you can have black people doing Wagner. It'll be okay, I promise. The music will still sound beautiful. <laughs> you know, you can, <laughs> I mean, you know, it's like you can tell black stories and stories of of. You know, there's there's Cuban composers who wrote operettas. Nobody performs them. Mm. So that's what I'm doing. Um, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to, you know... Bring, bring to diversity to the world of opera. Yeah, because it's stupid. Because here's the thing. Opera is struggling right now. Because they have failed to keep it relevant outside of the small, narrow circles of people who know anything about it because they have not been intentional about reaching the masses because I'm sorry, the powers that be don't feel that the masses are worth reaching except for now they're realizing that their ticket sales are dwindling. And yet, they're still not intentional about changing the industry because it's scary for them. Because changing the industry means that they'll have less of a grip on it, which means that they won't be able to reserve the the very selective slots for the people that they think should have them. And it's like, well, if you're good at what you do, it'll speak for itself. Um, so that's, Kristen, honestly, that's my, my aspiration is wherever I end up, that's what I want to do. I want to have a greater influence over whose stories get told and who gets the opportunities. Awesome. Awesome. Well, including for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I know you've said a lot and we've talked about a lot, but, but this is, um, I do this in every interview and, um, it's, just, it's a, a little thing I like to call the planet is yours. So what okay. I do is I strap on my oxygen tank and I step into the stratosphere and le I leave you alone on the planet to say whatever you want. At oh, the you're so funny. So um, the planet is yours. What, what would you like to say to, to the listening audience? Um, I just want to say that, you know, I'm, I'm, I love what I do. It's been hard. Um, I'm grateful for the fact that I'm still working at it. You know, um, I'm grateful for the opportunities that continue to come my way that allow me to continue to be engaged. Um, again, art is a calling. Being an artist is a calling. 
and it's not for everyone but for those of us who are true artists it also is something that you could never deny or walk away from i love what i do i'm grateful to have the talents that i have i'm grateful for whoever has enjoyed listening to me talk about myself um, <laughs> um but i you know you know being able to perform being able to express myself and help others express themselves, which experience has been some of the greatest, uh, one of the greatest privileges of my life. Um, I really am grateful to God for the talent that I've been given. Um, I meet every, I meet people every day who are like, man, I love to sing. I just wish that I sounded better when I did it. Um <laughs> 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 You know, um, shower singers. Yeah, yeah. I just, um, I, 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 I'm just grateful for what I have been able to do, and, um, yeah. I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's sometimes it's hard to to put into words. Um, kind of caught me a little off guard. <laughs> I've had a, you know, I've had a life. I've had a storied life. Um, I've had a very dynamic life. There's so much that I've experienced and have been able to do people I've met um, that I'm still in awe over some of the encounters I've had um, with individuals. You know, um, I got to talk to Whitten Marsalis on the phone a few times, actually. Oh, wonderful. You know, I mean, it's, it's um, yeah, it's, I'm just, I'm grateful. I'm grateful to the opportunities I've had. I'm grateful to my teachers who've encouraged me. Um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've, I've had some great teachers, some great mentors. Um, you know, Ruby Glover it was a great jazz singer from Baltimore. Um, another woman who mentored me, who I'm grateful to. Um, yeah, I just, you know, I mean, and not to be cheesy, but like, you know, Crispin, you have, believe it or not, been a really big part of what I've been able to do. Um, you know, it's, it's friends like you who, you know, are discerning, um, discerning artists who believe in my talent, who remind me of what I have to offer. Um, you know, people tell me, oh, my God, you did this and that. And the truth is, I just live my life. I just do what I think is right and try to do the best that I can do. And, um, you know, anyway, I'm rambling. You are art (laughs) art is you. So how do we, (laughs) how, how how can we contact you? Uh, do you have a website or especially as you have an upcoming production? Yeah. So it's funny that you should ask that because we've been talking about how to, um, so, if anybody is interested in learning more about the production or my work as an artist, uh, my email. Um, so, I, I'm on Instagram, and I'm so okay. I am the worst when it comes to managing my social media accounts. Um, I have an artist Facebook page, and I have not been on that page in like two years. Um, <laughs> um, I do have so my email address, Amanda Robin Lewis at gmail.com. 
our the website for the production is not up yet um, just because we're still working through contracts with certain individuals and rights um, but um, once those are done and they'll be done I think the next two weeks then we'll be looking to hire someone to help us or to, to post the website um, um, so I wish I had more information, but, um, once I have the information, what I can do, I can send it your way and so that it can be shared with whoever's listening to the podcast. Um, sure. I will say in the meantime, they can ch- check out Casilla Ensemble and Damascus Theater Collective because they do have, um, you know, they're, they're the people that I'm working with and, um, but yeah, call me back, um. When, uh, when we get that information, we can just follow up with me when we get that information. Um, yeah. Cool, cool. Thank you so much, Amanda Lewis, for joining me here on Planet 30. Thank you for listening to this episode of Planet 30. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at OnPlanet30. Like us on Facebook.com slash Planet 30. Our email address is onplanet Thirty at gmail.com. That's O-N-P-L-A-N-E-T-T-H-I-R-T-Y at gmail.com. For more information about Planet 30, visit our website, planet30.com. That's P-L-A-N-E-T-T-H-I-R-T-Y dot com. I am Crispin Brooks, and this is Planet 30.